0: Alright, tonight we're doing part two of limited atonement, or particular redemption, or definite atonement, definite redemption, anything along those lines, there's multiple names for it. Uh, Last time I recommended the book, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, and I brought it, and then I forgot it this week, I meant to bring it, and I also forgot to mention a classic, John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which is a really good book, and that's an easier read, it's much shorter Um, Not even the whole book is necessarily about the atonement. It's only like the first hundred pages or something are about the stuff that we're covering. The rest of it is uh, basic Reformed theology. Uh, But that's a very good book as well. Um, And I meant to bring them both and forgot them. So I apologize for that. I'll try and bring them next time. But this time... So uh, last time we covered sort of the positive presentation of limited atonement. Saying what it is. And if you remember, I redundantly said that it is about it being objective, that he actually did it, that it's um, a real thing, not potential. Uh, and, and we hammered on that last week, probably to the point where I almost annoyed with you with how much I said it over and over. Uh, so this week we wanna do a bit of defense because there's always verses thrown at us like, well, what about this verse? What about this verse? And um, those need to be responded to. So we're gonna to seek to do that tonight Maybe not every single individual verse, but uh, many of these verses have the same response to them. Uh, we'll do as many as we can. And if you think of one, um, say something. Or, you know what, we can even use this little uh, the, the donation tray, the, the bowl. If you want to put questions in there, we can use that uh, for, for just a Q&A for anything regarding any of the doctrines we're covering. Not just the limited atonement stuff, of course. So if you want to write anything out and put it in there, we'll cover it. So the issue is that Arminians and confused four-point Calvinists, which really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's just somebody that's confused. Um, They take passages of scripture that sound universal on the surface, such as passages that speak of him dying, Jesus dying for all or dying for the whole world. They, They sound universal on the surface, and then they use those to universalize the atonement which, as we already pointed out, can't really be done without becoming a universalist, but nevertheless, they do it anyway. All of those verses, and I don't want to sound arrogant here, but they really are not difficult to explain. They're not difficult to look at in context. If we just simply read them in the larger context, if we inter- interpret Scripture with Scripture, these are not, it's, it's not very confusing. It really isn't. And I don't mean to make it sound like they're dumb or anything like that. I don't, I don't mean that, but th- these are not, th- like, you don't, we don't have to contort the scriptures to get to where we're at answering these verses. So some of the verses that go- get thrown at us, uh, two of the big ones that, that we're going to spend a lot of time on at the end, John 129. This is John the Baptist. He sees Jesus and says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world or the sin of the world. First John 2.2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We'll spend a lot of time on those today because those are, those are some of the biggest, most prominent ones. Uh, we, we have preached through 1 John, so if you want to hear an entire sermon on this, much of the content is the same anyway because it's the same argument, but that is out there on our sermon audio First uh, John two one through two. It's actually one of our most downloaded sermons, and I'm not sure why. I don't know if limited atonement is an exciting passage or, or topic for for many people or not, but it seems to get downloaded a lot. So uh, John three sixteen, obviously the one of the most popular verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We talked about the whosoevers and how that's kind of a, uh, a misunderstanding in English to take it as uh, as if like people read into that ability of man. But it's literally all the believing ones shall not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't really speak anything about ability. But that world language is still there at the beginning. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore all died and he died for all so that we might not, no longer live for ourselves, but uh, for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, then there's a whole bunch of Hebrews that we've talked about a little bit, but um, repeatedly throughout Hebrews it says, So by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Uh, in Hebrews 2, 9. Hebrews 7, because he, this he did once for all when he offered up himself, Uh, Hebrews 9, 12, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. We'll talk about those. Those, again, are not at all difficult for us. Romans 6, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 8, for Christ also died for the sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put us to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So all of these, these are verses that get thrown out, that people take that as universal of all mankind, literally every single human being that has ever lived. Everyone can rightly claim that Jesus died for all people. We can use that language. Even Calvinists can use that language, but we don't mean it the same way that others mean it. When an Arminian or a synergist says this, they mean all people without exception meaning Jesus atoned for all the sins of literally every single person that ever lived. I don't know why they don't throw in the sins of fallen angels or Satan. I don't know why. Uh, they universalize it with seemingly no boundaries. Uh, but if they put a boundary on it, I don't know where they get it from. So if they're going to universalize it. Why not universalize it? But uh, they mean literally every single human being. Which, as we argued last week, would also mean that Jesus does not save by his death alone, and we are unwilling to conclude that. We are unwilling to take, take it that far and say that his atonement was not objective. We cling to the objectivity of the atonement, and that's why we limit it. We can also say, us, as Calvinists, Reformed, can say that Jesus died for all people, but we don't mean it all people without exception. We mean it all people without distinction. And that is not at all the same thing. That means all kinds of people, all types of people, all people groups. So this is what we mean when we say it's Jews and Gentiles. It's the whole world. It's circumcised and uncircumcised. Men and women, rich and old. Sorry, young and old, rich and poor. Um, Royalty and peasants, you know, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man as Colossians says. And notice that language from Colossians 3.11. It says, it, it also uses the term all, but then it we see what it means by when it says all. Like it, it speaks of the renewal by the Holy Spirit. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So if we want to universalize that text because it says all, then we have to say Christ is in everyone. Every single individual human being. No one's going to say that if they're a Christian. That doesn't make any sense. We know that Christ is not in unbelievers and unbelievers are not in christ therefore it clearly means this in the sense of all people without distinction all these categories it's greeks and jews circumcised and uncircumcised all in that sense not all without uh, exception it's all without distinction because no one says that christ is in believers so we can affirm that verse. We can, we can affirm the renewal of the Spirit is for everyone without distinction, all kinds of people, all types of people. Jesus didn't just, didn't die to save. He, Jesus did not die to save every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He died to save the elect from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as it says in Revelation. X, it's the, the, the prefix, out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He doesn't make a distinction as in this tribe, no, not them. Not this people group. I'm not dying for them. No, he dies for people from every single one. There's going to be elect from all over the world. So he, he died for all, meaning all without distinction. It's not just Jews. It's also Gentiles. He laid down his life for his sheep, and he has sheep from the entire world. Everywhere. This is what the biblical writers mean many times when they use the word world or all. It's that simple. It's the difference between all without exception and all without distinction. And that's a completely different thing. Also, we, can, uh, we, we see temporary or temporal language that we read in Hebrews. Again and again, all those verses in Hebrews that we read. Uh, he is contrasting, the writer to the Hebrews is contrasting the Old Covenant sacrifices with the priests and their Old Covenant uh, priestly duties. And how they had to repeat it year after year, over and over. That The, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away the sin. It doesn't take it away permanently so he's showing why christ's atonement is better he's a fulfillment of all those sacrifices that's all typology and it's fulfilled in christ but christ is better because he doesn't have to do it over and over and over again year after year it's done once for all time it's temporal once for all time it's done and you can see that in the context because that's his whole argument throughout these but let's look at hebrews 2 9 through 11 he says but We do see him who was made for a little while while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of the death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Everyone has a context. It's everyone for whom the sacrifice is offered. It's the the people that he's dying for. Not uh, Not everyone in the entire world, and we see this, and if you keep reading... For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Who's everyone? The many sons. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So everyone is everyone whom he's dying for. Everyone, all of the brethren, all those who are being sanctified are from the Father. They're given from the Father to the Son. That is everyone. It doesn't mean everyone without distinction because then you also have to say he's he's the author of their salvation through his sufferings and that they are sanctified and that they are from the Father and that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren because if you universalize the everyone then you have to universalize the everyone that's being talked about and nobody wants to do that unless you want to give up the christian faith hebrews 7 26 through 28 says it this way for it was fitting for us to have a high priest holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily see that contrast They they had to do this daily who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices once, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. See how they do this repeatedly? And they have to cleanse their own sins first. And he's saying, no, Christ is better. He doesn't have to do that. Because he died once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. He doesn't have to offer up a sacrifice for himself. So... It's not repeated. He doesn't do this daily. He does it once for all time, and it's done. You don't wake up the next morning and need another sacrifice of Christ. It's done once for all time. Hebrews 9.12, And not through the blood of bulls and calves, goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Talking about how we don't need those other sacrifices. And if you read all these in context, you can see how this is even more obvious. We just don't want to read the entire book of Hebrews to prove this. Hebrews 10.10, by this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Again, it's, it's about not repeating sacrifices. So that's temporal stuff. Notice that the writer is using typology there, too, obviously. All the Old Testament sacrifices are typological of Christ. The priesthood is typological of Christ's high priestly work. The sacrifices as him, as the Lamb of God. The temple as God with us, with the people. And they have to be holy. They have to have sacrifices so that they can be in God's presence because God is so holy. It's all typology. And he's drawing on the typology of those Old Testament sacrifices, right? Well, are those Old Testament sacrifices limited or are they universal? When when the high priest is offering these sacrifices and they put their hands on the goat and they transfer the sins, is he doing that for the people of Israel? Or is he also doing that for the high priest of Molech that's offering babies? Is he doing it for the Canaanites that they're destroying as well? Are their sins atoned for? in those sacrifices, are those universal? Of course not. All of those are limited as well. They're all done. All those sacrifices are done for the covenant community. It's intentional, and in you see how it's got a focus and an intent in its scope. It's aimed at a group. So those all those sacrifices that are being paralleled with Christ are likewise limited. And so Christ's sacrifice is parallel to those because it's limited in scope. It, too, is for the covenant community. Christ dies for the new Israel, the covenant community of Israel. Old Testament sacrifices and Christ's sacrifices are the same in that they are specifically for God's people, but Christ's sacrifice is better because it's made permanent. And it's, it puts an end to all sin. It, it is the fulfillment of all those typological sacrifices, but the scope of each one is the same. It is aimed at God's people. But then we see in other passages, all or world, and that just means all men categorically. What we talked about before. We can, also, we can uh, ask that kind of question, like, all of what? All, for all time in Hebrews, when it's when once for all, all what? All time. But we can ask that in other times. All of what? All of who? It's all of a set, right? We use the word all in a context all the time that is not universal. If a teacher is waiting for her class to fill up and, and everybody's coming in, it's about time to start, and she says, I think we're all here, or everyone have a seat, all of that, the everyone that she's talking about, the all that she's waiting for to come in is clearly her class. It's got a set, all of a set, everyone of her class. It's, it's got a context. The context determines the extent of that kind of language, and it would be silly for us to universalize a teacher's language when she uses that, when she speaks of all or everyone, because it's so abundantly obvious just looking at the context of who she's waiting for and talking about. So we see that in other verses, Romans 6, 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, notice the pronouns here. If we have died with Christ, who's that talking about? Believers. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died once for all. All of what? All of who? All of us. The we that he's talking about. He died once for all of us, believers. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So a lot of this is really reading the Bible in context and not piecing out little fragments of verses. You have to take the argumentation as a whole. You have to follow who they're talking about throughout all of this. We see it in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Who? The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, there we go. Again, you see the pronouns so often just tell you who the all is, all of us, and it's always the believers. We know 1 Peter is written specifically to the elect, and and we know that 2 Peter is written likewise to the elect, because he says, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, the same audience. So, there's this universal language that Peter uses that we can look at and see that he's using the context of his audience. Romans 3.2, sorry, 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Who? All of us. Us all? All of us. It's the same thing, right? All of us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, if you want to say that unbelievers are freely given all things and they likewise have salvation, then... Be consistent and say that they're saved, but we who realize the reality of hell and unbelievers and condemnation don't universalize things like this because we can read these verses in context. So all of us is all of the elect; it's all believers. We also need to re- recognize the use of hyperbolic language by the biblical writers. Hyperbolic language is a common literary device. It's it's not meant to be taken literally. Um, it's not a trick. It's just how people speak. So it's not not that what they're saying isn't true. It's that it's not intended to be taken literally. That's often the case with the use of all or the whole world. And we can see that throughout. So try and universalize this if you want to. uh, But I think any normal person that is being honest with the text can read this and know that it's not being universalized. Mark 5.1, and all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, does anyone here believe that the entire country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went to see Jesus and got baptized? I seriously doubt it. We know not every single person in Judea and Jerusalem confessed their sins and got baptized by John. Sorry, did I, say? I might have said Jesus, but this is referring to John. Isaiah 27:6. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Well, there's not a piece of fruit sitting right here. So is that verse false, or is it just not meant to be taken literally? It's kind of obvious, right? Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Which is amazing, because I didn't know the American Indians heard about the faith of the Roman church. They didn't. He's not talking about literally the entire world. It's just hyperbolic language speaking about his faith. Their their faith is going out to everybody. Literally not everybody, but it's going out, right? It's it's being spread. It's a figure of speech. And we need to recognize these sort of things. Revelation 12, nine, the serpent of old who is called devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Now, this can't mean every single person because we're expressly told elsewhere that the elect are not deceived because it's not even possible. If you look at Matthew 24, 24, he talks about the in, uh, they would be deceived if it were even possible. But it's not, is the, the idea. So the whole world there is, is not speaking of believers. It's talking about the unbelieving world in exclusion to believers. We see that kind of differentiation with the word world. I'll talk about that more in a little bit because the word world gets you so many different ways. Luke 2, 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Did you know that? That Caesar was trying to tax the American Indians he didn't know existed? Me neither. Because world doesn't mean the entire world there. You can see how obvious this is, right? He's not trying to tax the Chinese. He's not trying to tax every people on, person on earth. He's talking about the whole Roman world there. It's hyperbolic language. It's common and... and People that try and universalize that, or try to overly make it overly wooden. You know who does that? You know who makes it so overly wooden that it doesn't make sense? Atheists. That's how they read the Bible because they want it to sound stupid. They want it to sound unbelievable. So they 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 read it so woodenly that you can't even have like literary devices. And we can't be doing that. We can't read the Bible like an atheist. If an Armenian, if they weren't consistent in taking the instance of all or world as universal, then they would have a mess on their hands with all of those verses it wouldn't make sense the term world is used in a multiplicity of ways you can't just take one blanket definition of the word world meaning every individual ever and just plug it in every time the word world is used because it makes a mess of the text it it turns it into a jumbled mess of contradictory passages the greek word there is cosmos which you know the word cosmos uh, that we get in English, but it's used almost a dozen different senses, In just by John alone. John uses it all the time. He probably uses it the most. We'll look at that in just a moment. Um, but if you just take the use of the word world by John, he uses it in almost a dozen different senses. Some have counted 14, could be a little bit less, depending on how you take some of these verses, but it's it's in double digits. So the context of each usage determines the meaning. That's a basic rule of hermeneutics, one of the most basic rules. We are told not to love the world and to be separate from the world. Then we see Jesus saying he loved the world, and in 1 John 2, 2, that he takes away the sins of the world. He is the propitiation of the world. So as it's been said again and again, this is just another instance where we would be forced to believe in universal salvation if we held the meaning of world to be every single person ever. None of this means that the, that the whole world or, or language of that source can never be meant literally or it can never encompass all people, as in it, when it's directed at actual people, but it's showing that context is the key to understanding each of those and that all of scripture must be taken into account when we interpret those. And before we get into the John passages, I wanna, I wanna raise this one question. How do we then evangelize? Because that's always the the complaint against us, right? Well, how do we evangelize if if we don't know if Jesus died for a person? Well, it's pretty simple. Just do it like the apostles did it. They, They go tell the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tell the truth. Tell them if they place their faith in Christ, he will be a perfect savior. They will be saved. If they place their faith and trust in Christ for salvation, that he will save them. You don't have to know whether or not he died for them. That's That's not how the apostles actually evangelized. You don't see that. They don't go and tell people, Jesus died for you, therefore you owe him this and that, or do this and that. That's not what they do. They tell the truth about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah. And if you trust in him, you will be saved. And we can offer that promise to anyone and everyone because if they trust in him, with true saving faith, one, we know they'll be saved. Two, that will come from God. So we can blanketly, universally say that to every single human being ever, and we can evangelize like that. We don't have to say, Jesus died for you, person that I just met on the road. No. We don't say, can you, if you met Jacob and Esau, let's give a goofy hypothetical here. You meet Jacob and Esau, and they're these two twins. Can you say to Jacob and Esau, God loves you? I don't know how you can if God tells us that he hates Esau. How do you do that? How do you defy scripture there? It's the same idea. It, and, and we don't have to say that to individuals in the, and mean it in that way and kind of turn the love of God into this, this blanket generic thing. Same with the atonement. So we don't need a universal atonement to evangelize. We need the promise of the gospel. That's, all, that's how we evangelize. We tell the truth. All right, let's look at these uh, these two verses in John, the ones that get thrown out the most, because they probably do sound the most universalistic. That is uh, John's message. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's John 1.29. And then 1 John 2.2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I mean, my most basic reaction to this is to someone that universalizes that, I say, like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, if you want to universalize that, do you believe that people in hell have their sins taken away by Jesus? No, you can't, because then they're not in hell. Do you believe that he propitiated the sins of people in hell? When you say he, he's the propitiation for those of the whole world, do you mean the people in hell? Is, are their sins propitiated? No, they can't be, because otherwise they're not in hell. That's my most basic reaction, but let's, let's go more in depth with it. There's only two ways to interpret that verse. Either Jesus has made the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, meaning all men without distinction, both Jews and Gentiles, both John's immediate audience who he's talking to, and then the rest of believers across the globe, that's what he's talking about, or he's made the propitiation of the whole world, meaning all men without exception, meaning all humans that ever lived. And if the first one is true that we argue for, then we must affirm that Christ's intent on the cross was to bear the sins of his church and his church only, and only they will be saved because only their sins are taken away, only their sins are propitiated. But if the second were true, then to be consistent, then it must be affirmed that everybody is saved. It's just that simple. It's universalism or it's particular redemption. It's one or the other, and there's nowhere in between. No one would go to hell. Everyone would have their sins propitiated. Otherwise, you're just saying propitiation doesn't mean propitiation. So there's only two options. It's either this historic reform perspective of a real, objective, effectual atonement made for Christ's sheep exclusively, or it's universalism. There's no middle ground in this text for anything other than that. Those that use this verse to deny limited atonement actually prove too much. Their argument ends up proving universal salvation for all men because they hold to the literal its propitiation. It's like, well, then it's universalism you're you're i know i'm getting redundant that's why we spent so much time last week defining those words propitiation and expiation these biblical ideas right because we hold to those strongly if propitiation means propitiation and it does propitiation really does mean propitiation then world here must mean something other than every single human being in history and then that Greek word cosmos, that's, where, that's, where that, it, that's what it is. That's world. We, we take that term, and it can be used generally for the whole idea of the universe, but it has this wide range of meaning in Greek, wider than just all people, far wider than that. And we can look at our author, John, right? The, the various ways that he reflected that use, that range of use in that one term. He used it in all these different ways. In each case, it's determined by the words and the context surrounding it. That's how we know. So I remember the very first time when I looked at these years ago, and I was just like, I have way oversimplified the, the reading of Scripture because it opened my eyes to how to properly do it. How I, you, you've got to pay way more attention. You can't just take one word and just assign a singular meaning and, and plug it in every time. So listen to the myriad of ways that John uses the term world. John 17, 5. And now, Father, there's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his high priestly prayer. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So that's, that's speaking of world in, in the sense of the creation, the entire universe that existed, right? John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to be- depart out of this world, speaking of earth idea, the physical realm, The world, to the Father having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's speaking about the physical realm of creation, basically. Same as as 17.5. John 1.10. He was in the world, meaning that physical creation, and the world, that creation, and and by implication the people, was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Well, that's not talking about the grass and the trees. The world did not know him, meaning the unbelieving people of the world did not know him. So even in one verse, he can use it in different senses. So you can see it the entire universe, the physical realm, planet Earth, unbelievers, specifically on the Earth, the realm of mankind in general. It just depends. We see it more. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 14, 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. John sixteen thirty three. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And there you can kind of see him speaking of the world in terms of, you know, the, the, the evil world system that is in opposition to his spiritual kingdom. Like how we speak of being worldly in a negative sense, right? As in a, a, a not just secular, as in it's neutral but worldly in the negative sense is in the evil world system, that kind of idea. And like how Paul speaks of elementary principles of the world that are in contrast to Christ. John twelve nineteen. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, that couldn't mean anything other than like a large, diverse amount of believing people that are going after Jesus. But obviously it's not all people everywhere because they themselves are not going after him. So they can't be meaning world in the universal sense there. They just have to mean like, oh, there's a ton of people. It's just hyperbolic language that, you know, that this is how normal people will speak. John 7, verses 3 and 4. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And that just means the general public, really. Again, it's not like speaking of the Chinese or people up in Sweden and the American Indians. Nothing like that. It's just, you know, going to the general public as opposed to a private group. That's what they mean by show yourself to the world. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John fifteen eighteen. if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, that is clear use of the world referring to all unbelievers to the exclusion of believers. So that's talking about the world in the sense of all unbelieving people. They hate Christ, and it, they hated him before they hated us, and if they hate him, they're going to hate us. And that's not speaking of believers. The world can be used in the, with the exclusion of believers. But then in John 3, when John refers to the salvation of the world, it's clearly referring to the elect alone. Because the elect alone are the ones that are actually saved. So John three seventeen, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it can be used in the sense of the world of all believers from all over, which we've seen that multiple times already. So you see, you see this context, how important that is to determine these universal sounding words. This is a purpose statement for Christ coming to die. It's to save the world, which, of course, only applies to believers. But since the elect come from the entire physical world, out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from all times and all places, then John can call them the world in this context. At other times, he can mean the direct opposite, though. It can be used of, by Jesus in John's gospel to refer to the non-elect. So in John 17, 9, he says, I am praying for them talking about his followers. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So there he speaks of the world of only unbelievers. I'm praying for my followers. I'm not praying for unbelievers right now in the high priestly prayer. So he's very specific there. You notice he's an advocate there. He's interceding for the same group he's going to die for and atone for, because intercession and atonement are linked together. It's the high priestly work. It's only for believers. John four forty two, they said to the women, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. That's after the woman at the well told everyone about her encounter with Jesus in Samaria. Remember, this was among the Samaritans who, who they're not viewed as full Jews. So here world means Jews and Gentiles. It means world, including even Samaritans. He's the savior for even us. He's the savior of the world in the sense of all men without distinction, not just Israel, but also for Gentiles, even these half Jews, the Samaritans that were hated by the Jews. So we can see the wide range of literary use of the term world. And it's that's just John. All of those were just within John. Which I mean, those two verses that sound so universal, John 129 and uh, 1 John 22 2, those are that's John. Right. So it's important to show how he can do this. Four men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as John says in Revelation 5.9. That's also John. It's all believers everywhere um, that he actually died for, that he propitiated for, that he took away the sins of. There's, there's no way to overemphasize how much of a mental block this concept was for many that came out of Judaism. Right. The, the fact that they're saying it's not just the Jews, and they're saying that to Israel, and they're saying you're not in just because you're Jewish you're not a son of Abraham by default, by blood, by your genetics. You're only a son of Abraham by faith. And guess what? That means those believing Gentiles over there are sons of Abraham, and you Pharisees are not. They're part of the world that Jesus saves. You're the world that Jesus condemns. That's a, that is a huge mental block for them, and it's hard for us to underestimate it um, or overestimate it. World here means all believers in all times and places, just as it means in... John 3, 4, John 12, that's, that's when it's speaking of the salvation of the world and, of, and uh, those two passages in John. There's no other way to interpret the verse unless you want to deny the reality of hell. Or maybe you have the reality of hell with no people in it, which makes just as little sense, honestly. If Christ made propitiation for all men without exception, then all men without exception are going to go to heaven. They have to because God is just and God cannot punish someone in hell if their sins have been propitiated. Every person that ever lived has to be made right with God, has to have their sins taken away if they're gonna go to heaven and that's what those verses would be saying. So the guilt of all humans is expiated to be removed far from them and we know that is not the case. We know that for a fact. So instead of being verses that disprove limited atonement because of the way they use the word world, It's actually, both of those are verses that proves limited atonement conclusively because of the way it speaks of propitiation. Propitiation and taking away the sins, the expiation, in John 1.29, those provide the context by which we properly interpret the word world so that we would not be universalists. B.B. Warfield said this, I'll close with this quote. He said, Things we have to choose, the things we have to choose between, are an atonement of high value, or an atonement of wide extension. The two cannot go together. You can't have a literal, objective atonement with a wide extension to everyone, without exception. If you're going to have an atonement of high value, so it's one or the other. Everyone limits the atonement. We limit its scope. They limit its power. Ours is better. Ours is biblical. (laughs) Those verses are not difficult for us. Um, We could keep going on a few other verses, but uh, I think we would go too long and probably would not have time for questions. But I want to do some verses like um, 2 Peter 2.1 and some others. But again, the ideas are often uh, very similar. But... Uh, we'll save that. We'll end. We'll end at a good time and not make this too long. Um, any questions about any of that? Comment. Um, comment from Andy. You want? <laughs> just a comment from Andy. Yeah. Letting the people online know. I don't know. I don't know. You want me? You want a mic? <laughs> Yes. So, I mean, obviously in line with what you're saying, it's like, how can there be this covenant where God says, I will remember your sins no more? You know, Christ's atonement has wiped out all sins of all people. God is remembering their sin no more. I mean, you've already brought up the point, but it just, it doesn't make sense that that can be true for everybody, and yet they're not being in covenant and they suffer in hell. Yeah. For those online, Andy's saying in Hebrews 8, it speaks of a new covenant where God promises to remember their sins no more. And that covenant is enacted upon his death and those that he died for. And it does not make sense for that to apply to everyone. And yes, 100% agree. It's just like the old covenant community. Sacrifices are offered for God's people. The people within the covenant and unbelievers outside of the community are not part of that covenant and the sacrifices are not intended for them. It's the same in the new covenant except the sacrifice is effectual and it actually does its job. And it sounds harsh and I, and I don't want to hold them to a consistency that they don't want to hold to themselves, which I'm glad they don't. But everyone that universalizes the atonement and then says that people go to hell still. It's just a a new way to have works-based salvation because they're they're putting everything on. Everything depends on you. God's done his part. Now you do your part. And if you don't do your part, you're going to be condemned. But if you do do your part, you will live. Do this and live. It's the same error. It's the old covenant error of do this and live. That's not what the new covenant is about. The new covenant is Christ has done it. Now you live. And I'll make one more comment. One more comment. It goes back to what you were talking about last week that, you know, people say Christ died for the sins of every person except unbelief. Yeah. And you reject Christ, and that's why you go to hell. And and you talked about that sound, it makes sense. But the thing that blows my mind about that is the thing that, A, yes, it makes it work salvation if that's true. That Christ died for the sins of every person except unbelief at one instant in time. You rejected Christ, and that's why you had he hell. It, it doesn't account for what well, he would have had to have paid for the sin of unbelief all throughout your life. Yeah. There's one point <laughs> yes. in time that he chooses not to pay for the sin of unbelief. And that's what sin you have. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. It anymore. doesn't. It's like even now, like, as a believer, I'm He hasn't paid for the sin of unbelief. Right. I mean, from mean Yeah, I'll repeat that for people online. So Andy's pointing out that if uh, people that say... <laughs> no, no, they, it's, a, it's a great point. It's a great point. Um, uh, Andy's saying that if Christ died for all the sins of all people, but then they only go to hell for their unbelief, that doesn't make sense because even people that are saved have to have their unbelief paid for from before they believed. Because we weren't born believing. We weren't born with faith. It was granted to us and we had years of unbelief that have to be paid for so why would christ pay for just these block of years of unbelief but then not these block of years of unbelief it doesn't make sense and that's why i honestly i hate the way it sounds but these verses are not difficult to reconcile i hate this argument of like well this side has their verses and this side has these verses and we just don't know yes we do the Bible is not a confused book of just gray matter that we're just like, who knows? I guess we'll see you on the day of judgment. No, God speaks clearly. I'm not going to drag the Bible through the mud by pretending like it's inept to teach us. It is capable to teach us every good work, and that includes doctrine. It is, it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and that includes doctrine. The teaching includes doctrine. The Bible can speak to this and reconcile these things and answer these questions because of its clarity. So I, th- I, hate, I hate that idea of like, I, I know we don't want to like mock people for being stupid. And I don't think it's a, an intellectual issue. I honestly don't I think it's a spiritual issue. We've made that point over and over. Um, anybody can figure this out. I think, I think children can understand this. And um, it's a spiritual issue to accept these kind of truths. Um, it's not because anybody's better and we're smarter than everybody else, but I think believing them reconciles scripture a lot, lot better. Anything else? Okay. Remember, the 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 plate will be open for questions. Put anything in there. What about this verse? What about this idea? Anything? And uh, obviously, we've got multiple um, uh, lessons left in this series, but. Um, for some reason limited atonement is always this big roadblock for people and i don't think it should be i think it should be this is like the entrance of this is this was my entrance at least into reform theology it was the first one where i'm like yeah obviously i can't deny the the uh that christ alone saves all right anyway uh let's pray heavenly father we are again thankful and we worship you for an atonement that was effectual, that was indeed done. And it was so real and so objective that we can place our entire confidence for our salvation in the work of Christ, knowing that it was done, knowing that we don't have to add to it or make it do something. We don't have to take up the work of the atonement and somehow use it ourselves. It is all done for us. We don't have to do any works to live. We don't have to come up with our own faith or change our own hearts or, or muster up enough mind control, to to make ourselves believe, Lord, it's all a gift from the Holy Spirit's working in us. And so we worship you and honor you for such a great gift of salvation. We pray that it would be clearly understood amongst us in our church and our preaching. And when we uh, try to communicate it with others, I pray we would do so with grace and with truth, that we would not be rude, but we'd also be assertive so that we Make clear that this is about Jesus really doing the work to save us. And we do not want to neuter that in any possible way. We want to take it with the full power and effectual, um, the effectual means that it is. We worship you and honor you for this gift to us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.